So yesterday was kind of a crazy day in the DeHart household, and uh, trying to get the kids calmed down and ready for bed, Judson and I had, had jumped into his bed, and we were watching the last game of the Final Four last night, North Carolina against Oregon. And so we were, we were cuddled up in bed watching the game, and you know, North Carolina, who's this, this huge basketball power, right, they've been to the Final Four 20 times, more than any other team, is playing Oregon, who's been to the Final Four once in 1939, right? And North Carolina's winning the whole game, and, and it looks like they're going to wrap it up, and then Oregon begins to make a late push, and they get to within two points at the end of the game, and they foul North Carolina, and North Carolina goes to shoot two free throws, and the center for North Carolina shoots twice, misses both times, and Oregon, all they had to do was get the rebound, go down and score, and they could have tied the game and sent it into overtime, but none of their, none of their guys did what is called boxing out, okay, and boxing out is, I, I'd like to physically show you because I love basketball, and, but it'd look kind of funny with me up here by myself, so I'm just going to try to explain it with words. Boxing out is the idea of using your rear end to push someone backwards so that you have enough space to, to grab the basketball, okay? It's, it's what you do when a shot goes up so that you can rebound the ball, and, and it's, it's one of the first fundamentals that you're taught when you play basketball, and nobody for Oregon did that, and so North Carolina was able to get the rebound, and then they got fouled again, and they went to the free throw line, and the guy missed two free throws, and there was still time for Oregon to get the rebound, go down and score, but you know what? They didn't box out again, and North Carolina got the rebound and won. I've never seen anything like it. Normally, if you miss four free throws at the end of the game, you're on the losing team, not the winning team, right? It was a reminder that, that fundamentals are important, um, and, and I promise you, I promise you that those men, those young men from Oregon that did not box out, they have boxed out thousands of times in front of their coaches, right? They, they have been trained as, as little boys, even to the highest of, of, of highs in collegiate basketball. They've been trained and taught how to box out. And what we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about three things that are fundamental to loving the Lord and loving your neighbor. We're going to talk about um, giving, we're going to talk about prayer, and we're going to talk about fasting. In fact, I would, I would go so far as to say that these are fundamentals of Christianity. If, if you're a faithful believer, these are three things that you will seek to do in your Christian life. But Jesus wants to make sure that we understand something important. You're not supposed to do these things. You're not supposed to give your money. You're not supposed to pray. And you're not supposed to fast in a way that shows how super awesome spiritual you are. That's not the point of what we do. To connect with our opening illustration, it does no good for a an ath for a basketball player to box out perfectly in practice in front of their coaches and teammates and then not do it when they're supposed to do it in the game. You're not supposed to do these three things that we're going to talk about as some sort of show for people to see and it have nothing of worth inside of you 
and it shows nothing in terms of how much God is worth to you. So there's this idea that, that I want to jump into very quickly. I, I don't want to weigh you down with unnecessary words and verbiage, but I think this is an important phrase, and I think it, it'll, it'll kind of help us as we push forward, all right? So there's this Latin term called quorum deo. Quorum Deo, it's spelled C-O-R-A-M-D-E-O. It should, it should be popping up here in a second on the screen. But Quorum Deo, Deo carries with it the idea that we are always present in God's eyes and his kingdom. We are always present in God's eyes and his kingdom. So the idea of Coram Deo is that there is nothing that you do that God does not see, and there's nothing that you do that is not a part of what God is using to bring about his kingdom. And this, frankly, is kind of a scary thing, right? When we think of some of the thoughts that we have that run through our mind, God knows those thoughts, when we think of some of the actions that we've done behind closed doors, God has seen those very things. But there's also, there's meant to be for the believer an encouragement here. And that encouragement is you're called to be faithful to God and you're called to, to live for his glory and his honor. And so there should be things in your life that you do that no one else sees. And if you are living your life in front of God for him to see and for him to use for his kingdom, then he's going to take note. He's going to see what you've done. He's going to see how you've cared for others. He's going to see how you, because of his love for you and in you, you have turned around and loved others. This is the idea that no good deed is unseen. That God knows who you are and what you're doing behind closed doors. So if that scares you, let that lead you to repentance. If that's an encouragement, use it to take heart. But we, we move from this idea of Coram Deo, that God sees and he knows that, that, that we are in his presence and, and, and he's using it for his kingdom. We take that to, to come to this realization. We as Christians should do good for God's glory alone, for God's presence alone, by God's power alone. We do good for God's glory alone, for God's presence alone, by God's power alone. So all of the good that we seek to do, we should do it to honor God and make much of him. And not only that, but we should do it for his presence alone. Now there's a reason I use the word for and not in. All right? Because you're going to hear Jesus say that you should not pray in front of others. You should pray in private. And we know that this isn't a hard and fast rule because there are plenty of places where God calls on the people of God to pray together, to pray as a community. In fact, in the prayer that he's going to teach us today, he starts it with our father, not my father. And it's hard to say our father when you're by yourself, right? 
So there are going to be times when you are called to pray in community. And not only that, but, but you know, we're going to be told not to, not to make it appear like we're fasting. But friends, if you and I go out to lunch and you're fasting, please tell me you're fasting so I'm not looking at you thinking, why are they not eating? Have, have, is something wrong, right? It's, it's, it's <coughs> the point of what Jesus is going to talk about today is not that you have to make this some sort of hard and fast rule that you have to live by to the T. What Jesus is telling us today is your motives matter. So when we say that we do good for God's glory alone and for God's presence alone, that means that even if I pray in front of you, like I just did, that my aim in my prayer is not for you to say, wow, Andy is such a great prayer. He is so impressive. That's amazing. No, I'm meant to talk to God with you on your behalf. So I do it for his presence alone. I do it in your presence, but I do it for his alone. And then the final part of that phrase, by God's power alone. Friends, you cannot, you cannot Follow the commands of the Sermon on the Mount apart from being a born-again Christian without having turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and having the Holy Spirit empowering your heart, your mind, and your life to follow his commands. It's impossible. You will not be able to accomplish it. So with this idea of Coram Deo, of being in the presence of or of, of God being in our presence at all times and seeing everything that we do and has done to us. And with this idea of doing good for God's glory alone, for his presence alone, and by his power alone, let's jump into the text. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And we continue the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus begins these, these few paragraphs with the main thesis statement. It starts with verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. This was the biggest problem the Pharisees had. Friends, these three teachings right here are going to go straight to the heart of the Pharisees. And there are some of you in here today who have hearts that bend towards Phariseeism. And so you need to hear this. You need this correction. And there are some of you in here who are not Pharisees. And so your heart is, I detest them. I hate them. And so I'm going to love this sermon today because we're going to stick it to them, right? Preach on, Andy. Get them. And of course, that would be the wrong way to look at this too. Because hating Pharisees can become a Phariseeism of itself. And we can hold up our not striving for righteousness to be some sort of righteousness. It's amazing how God is so gracious to us and we want to find ways to make ourselves look better than other people. 
And so Jesus steps into this and he says, listen, don't practice your righteousness for the eyes of other people. Do not be the person who, and of course we'll, we'll use this first illustration of how, of how not to do it, right? Don't sound the trumpets when you give to the poor. And this is, this can be a little concerning when you think about it. Because Often, and I've, I've been a part of this, often um, I've been a part of a group who does something good and the first thing we do is we tell people about it. Uh, I, our, our church back in West Virginia, we used to, every Thanksgiving, we would, we would have everybody in our church buy about, gosh, we, we did all the way from 100 one year to I think like 250 one year, uh, turkeys, frozen turkeys at Thanksgiving time, and we would pass them out to people who didn't have turkeys uh, to have with their family for Thanksgiving. And we would, we would make a big deal about it, right? Like we would, we would get the word out about it so people knew to come and get them. Um, but, but there were often times when, when the news would come and, and we'd have the opportunity to say, yeah, we just want to love people and, and, and help them during this Thanksgiving season and tell them about Jesus. And, and our motive was always not to get out the word that, hey, this church is giving away turkeys and, and, and you should think that they're awesome, but that we wanted people to know about Jesus and know about our church so they would come to hear about Jesus. But this, this kind of straddles that line, right? Jesus says to not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, to do your giving in secret because your ultimate goal is not for us to say you're awesome, It's for God to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And here's where, here's where I I think we can look at our motives and, and check ourselves. The Pharisees thought that their righteousness had to come from themselves. That they had to perfect, to be perfectly obedient to the law so that God would bestow his grace and love on them. And so they were seeking to do things out of their own power. But friends, the gospel completely flips that and changes that. Because the gospel says that you and I are so sinful and so messed up that apart from Christ we can do nothing. Even our good good deeds are done in a way that glorifies us and makes much of us and, and doesn't ultimately honor God. So when the gospel comes and wrecks our hearts and changes our hearts, what that should do is it should lead us to a service that is built upon humility, that's built upon this is a gift from God. What I'm doing, the goodness that's flowing out of me, it's foreign from me. This is not me. This is God working through me. And if we take that position of being humble and being pliable and being used by God, then that'll change our desires. It'll change what our hoped outcomes are for our service. And so here, Jesus is saying, don't give so that you get an attaboy from the people around you. Give in a way that only God knows. Give in a way so that God sees his work in you.
That's what Jesus is driving us towards. And so this, this, this pushes back against us, not just because we may have been a part of a church that, that did something and then announced the good that they did. This pushes back against us because we want to be recognized. We want to be acknowledged. There is something about us that wants the spotlight on us. And Jesus is saying, you need to take the spotlight completely off of you because it's not about you. Friends, any giving or good work that we do should be about glorifying God, should be about spreading the fame of Jesus. So we give in secret so that our Father who is in secret will reward us. These phrases from Jesus that are going to come up a few more times, they should remind us that our reward is not found here. Our reward is, it's not even after we die, right? That's only another part of the, the ultimate reward is when Christ returns and he sets up the new heavens and the new earth and we reign with him forever in his presence with his joy, apart from sin, apart from shame, apart from sickness. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're hoping for. So your heart, even though it's been trained to want and desire the pats on the back here, your ultimate desire should be to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. That's what we hope for. That's what we long for. Believer, that should be where your heart and desire aims. So we do good for God's glory alone, for his presence alone, and by his power alone. Verse five, Jesus says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So, there's an issue here. The Pharisees weren't just praying in public, they were praying in public for show. They were trying to use big fancy words and really eloquent concepts to pray to God. Now, one of the things that we can do with this, and I'm going to come down here because I think this is important. One of the things that we can do with this is we can purposefully seek to dumb down prayer, and I don't think we should do that, okay? I'm not saying that your prayers have to be super eloquent, and I'm definitely not saying your prayers should be in King James only in English, okay? If you don't on a regular basis use thee and thou, it's okay if your prayers don't have them in there, all right? What I'm telling you is that your prayers, while they are meant to be, you're speaking to God, right? I mean, that's all prayer is. We believe because of the work that Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection that he has become, as the as, um, book of Hebrews tells us, he's become our mediator. 
right? Jesus stands in between us and the Father, and he gives us access to God through prayer. And so you can go to God with anything. And so you should feel free to do that because of the blood of Jesus. But just because you have that access doesn't mean that you should treat it like you shouldn't pray like you order your chili cheeseburger at Whataburger, all right? I mean, you can, and I mean, sometimes my, sometimes my eight and 10-year-old's prayers kind of sound like that, and that's good because they should mature in that. But friends, we should see prayer as an opportunity to spend time with our Father, to spend time in worship and adoration of Him, And because of that, that should have some formation on our prayers. There should be times when it's, you know, you're driving into a meeting and you're like, God, be with me, give me peace, you know, let let this go well. Those Those are good prayers. You should do them. But when you have time to draw away for 15 or 30 minutes and and really spend time in prayer, put some thought into it. Worship the Lord in how you pray. Don't, now, don't do it in a way that makes you think you're going to look impressive to God, right? God is not impressed by you. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, but the one who hung the stars and created the Grand Canyon and set the peak of Mount Everest is not impressed by you. No matter how awesome your vocabulary and theological knowledge are, what he wants from you is to spend time with his child, to form you into the image of Jesus through your prayer life with him. So think about your prayers. Put some, put some, put some work into them in terms of, of praising God and not praising him the same time every time. But don't turn it into, I'm gonna really, I'm gonna really impress God or I'm gonna really impress someone else with my prayers. That's not the point of prayer. And that's the warning that Jesus is giving. He's saying, don't be like the Pharisees because they're hypocrites. They use these big fancy words in their prayers, but their lives are empty of following God. So he tells us to go into our room, shut the door, pray to him in secret, and he will reward us. Verse 7, he says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. So not only should we not be like the the Pharisees and the hypocrites who who try to impress God with impressive prayer language, we also shouldn't fall into what the Gentiles do. Now, of course, the Gentiles, um, that's us, right? Unless you're Jewish, you fall into that category of Gentile. Um, But Jesus is not talking about us, right? He's talking about our ancestors, um, he's talking about the, the Greeks and the Romans that surrounded the, the Jews at the time and how one of the things that they would do for their prayers is they would say the same repetitions again and again and again. They, they almost used them like magical incantations, right? If I just say this sentence or these couple sentences enough, then magical powers from the gods will come to me. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't heap up meaningless words. When you pray, think about what you're saying. Know that you're communicating to the living God. 
the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God that, that, that parted the Red Sea, the God that, that used a stone from a shepherd boy to slay a giant, the God who, well, I mean, we could just go through all the Old Testament stories, right? But, but that is the same God that you are speaking to with your prayers. So don't heap up empty phrases. One of the funniest things that I've ever noticed in, in my life in the church, the church that I grew up in was a fairly traditional church, um, and one of the things that they would always do is uh, one of the first prayers that would be said during the service would be done by a deacon, and the deacon, he would open up with prayer, right, and he would pray his own prayer, and then near the end of the prayer, he would finish with the Lord's Prayer. <coughs> and every deacon did this every Sunday, right? And so, I mean, it was, it was good in terms of teaching because I have the, the Lord's Prayer memorized, right? I mean, I will, I will always have it in my head because of that. Um, but ultimately, what it became was just something that everybody said together that was without meaning. And of course, the funny thing is, is Right after verse 8, or, um, yeah, right after verse 8, Jesus is going to teach us how to pray using the Lord's Prayer. And the, the church that I grew up in had, had taken where Jesus says, don't just heap up empty phrases, and then all of a sudden we start heaping up empty phrases. And of course, you could make the point, and I would agree with this, that this wasn't my church's fault, it was my fault, right? That I wasn't finding meaning in the Lord's Prayer that I was just saying it to say it because that's what you do. But friends, we need to take serious this warning that prayer is important. And it's important not because there are magical words to say. It's important because this is us communicating with our Heavenly Father, the Creator and Sustainer and Savior of the world. This is not something we have to get done and get out of the way. This is a privilege. This is access to the one who created you. And to be able to go to him in prayer should not be taken lightly. So very quickly, I want us to, um, we don't have time to go in depth on, on the, the Lord's Prayer, so I'm just gonna work through it quickly and touch on it quickly. Um, if you want to, I mean, I mean, I would love to sit down and talk with you more about this. Uh, maybe one day we can go through this slowly, but we just don't have enough time to cover the Lord's Prayer and get the, the full brunt of the sermon. And so verse 9, Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, you know, Jesus begins the prayer already differently than, than these Jewish disciples would have ever heard it because he starts with calling God our Father. Right? He begins placing God in, in the place not of creator and judge, which he also is, but in terms of being their Father in heaven, the one who loves them and cares about them. The word that is used here, Abba, it, it, it carries with it a, a, a more intimate idea of, than even the word Father. This is, the something, this is something that, that a little boy or a little girl would say when they climbed up into their daddy's lap at the end of the day. Our Father in heaven. So don't get too intimate, right? <laughs> 
He loves you like a father. He watches over you like a father. He's working in your life to teach you like a father, but he is not some local, small deity. He is our father who is in heaven. He is our father who sits over the universe as king. He is our father who sees and knows everything. He is our father who is a big deal. Hallowed be your name. This is simply a call for us in our prayers to worship God. Let your prayers be ones of worship. Tell him how magnificent and majestic and awesome he is. Pray, let, let your prayers lead you to singing and let your singing lead you to praying. Use the Psalms and, and some of the other places of praise and scripture to lead you towards prayer. But our prayer is meant to praise God. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew, you know, we, we've heard this term kingdom a lot. It's all about the kingdom of God for Matthew. Just like it is for, I mean, the, the other three uh, gospel stories, right? But Jesus here is teaching us to pray that God's kingdom would come, that unbelievers would hear about the gospel and believe in it, that 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 the things that are true of God's kingdom would be true here, that peace and justice would be real and true things. So when you're praying for God's kingdom to come, pray for your unbelieving friends. Pray, pray for the injustices in the world. And then we come to your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is where we pray for those that we love that are sick, those that we love that are hurting. This is where we pray that, that God would do miraculous things here just like he's done throughout time. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. This is a simple way to remind ourselves that we're reliant upon God. This is the hardest verse for people in the United States of America to pray because most of us have pantries and refrigerators full of food. We don't know what it means to not know where our next meal is coming from. And so we need to pray this with humility. We need to pray this recognizing that God could take everything away from us tomorrow. But we pray that he would provide because he is our good heavenly father. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Remember, friends, your, your, your sins are forgiven. They're paid for. Jesus paid for them on the cross. But we still want to be in the habit of confessing our sinfulness because it reminds us of how needed the cross is, um, but, but it also calls us to, to this idea of being grace givers as well as grace getters. Right? That's why Jesus teaches us as we also have forgiven our debtors. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is not the idea that God purposefully tempts us to sin, right? We know that that's not true. James tells us that in his letter. This is that idea that we, in our lives and in God's sovereignty, come into contact with sin often. And so we, we need to ask God for strength not to be, or not to fall into our temptation and for him to deliver us from, from evil. And with that, that, the idea of delivering us from the evil one. Verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Man, this is one of the hardest passages of Scripture. 
because this has laid a lot of guilt on a lot of believers, and they've thought, oh no, I'm going to go to hell because I know there's somebody in third grade that did something wrong, and, they did not, and I did not forgive them, and I cannot remember who they are or what they did, so I'm, I'm, I'm done for. Friends, that's not what Jesus is saying, okay? What Jesus is saying is if you've been forgiven, you will forgive others. If your heart has been forgiven by God and you know what grace and mercy are, you will turn around and be gracious and merciful. You are saved by what? By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is not saying you will go to hell for forgiving everybody except for that one person you forgot about. What he's saying is that if you've tasted grace, you want to dispense it. It's just like a great new restaurant. When you eat it, you're like, I want to tell everybody about this restaurant. When you've tasted grace, you want everyone to know that feeling. And so if you know God's forgiveness, you're going to want to forgive. Is it going to be easy all the time? Absolutely not. There have been people that have hurt you deeply. I know that because there have been people that have hurt me deeply. And there are some times when it takes years to forgive, but what Christ is calling you to is to take those initial steps. Be the one who is willing and ready to forgive. Take heart, or take to heart what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, that we are to be kind to one another and merciful, forgiving others as God in Christ has forgiven us. How did God in Christ forgive you? He took your sins and he put them on Jesus on the cross. So how do you forgive those people that you feel are unforgivable? You take what they did to you and you put it on Jesus on the cross. And you say, Jesus, I want you to deal with this. And if they come to to repentance and faith in Christ, then they will be forgiven and they will taste the free eternal grace of God like you have. But if they don't, then God's righteous wrath will still be over them and they will spend eternity paying for their sins including the ways that they've hurt you. But our hope is that they'll taste grace like us and that our forgiveness towards them will help lead them to Jesus. So friends, we're called to forgive because it's what honors the Lord and it puts justice in his hands and not ours. And ultimately, what this forgiveness does is it shows us how good Jesus is, right? So don't read this and think that you have to write down every person that's ever sinned against you and make sure that you forgive them. That's not the point. The point is Jesus saying, if you're forgiven, you will forgive. If you've tasted grace, you will give grace. And if you don't give grace, and if you don't forgive, it's because you still have a hard heart that has not been changed by God. So we move to the final few verses. Verse 16. Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, 
anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may, be seen by, may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Very quickly, the idea of fasting is to go without food over a period of time to draw closer to God or to see his will. Um, I would encourage you, if fasting is not a part of your life, and I've had some times um, where it has been and it hasn't been, I'm taking a spiritual formation class uh, for my doctorate, and so uh, all of the books are talking about fasting, and so it's reminding me of its importance, and I'm, I'm trying to enter back into it. Uh, fasting is hard, especially for somebody who's never fasted before, right? Like, you'll say, okay, I'm going to fast today, and you get through breakfast, and lunchtime comes, and you're like, oh man, this is really hard. And normally, between lunch and dinner, you give in, and, and your fast is done. Here's, here, here's the way to do fasting, Okay? You need to replace that food with something. And if you're going to fast for the Lord, you need to replace it with him. So if you're going to fast, you need to spend time in prayer. I would add some extra Bible reading or maybe a, a book that's based on the Bible or, or has biblical themes to it. Add that into, into your repertoire. Um, but one of, one of the best ways to start fasting is instead of trying to, instead of saying, I'm going to fast tomorrow, right? So, um, what would be better is to say, I will fast from lunch to lunch. So today at lunch will be your last meal. So you'll take off dinner and you'll take off breakfast and then you'll have lunch. And so you'll, you will have fasted for two meals. It will it'll, it'll help your, your stomach kind of get used to the idea. And then from that, you can move into, move into some deeper fastings. Um, fasting is not a requirement, but I think it's a good thing. Um, Remember what we read a couple months ago when we started uh, Jesus being tempted by Satan? Jesus had, had fasted for how long? 40, 40 days, right? And the first thing Satan comes and says is, hey, why don't you turn this, this stone into bread and eat? And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy and he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. I think fasting, what it does is it, it gets our heart to see how much we need God. Because when we are into, you know, eating breakfast and eating lunch and eating dinner and going about our day and going about our work, a lot of times we don't sense our need for God. We might when we sin, right? Like when we get mad at somebody and we say a cuss word under our breath and we're like, gosh, God, I'm sorry, I really need you. Um, but for the most part throughout the day, we won't see it. But I promise you, if you skip dinner and breakfast, you'll be thinking, I need something, right? And instead of thinking, I need a Snickers bar or a bean burrito, it'll help you realize that you need God. You need his word working in your mind and in your life. And so I would encourage you, if you've never fasted before, try it. Get, get, give it a shot this week. See, see if you could take a, a dinner and a breakfast off and replace that dinner time and that breakfast time with some prayer and some Bible study to give you more of God and show you that you can live without bread, but you cannot live without God. And so Jesus says when you do this fasting, you do it <clears throat> not as a show, not to get people to say, wow, how spiritual are you, you fast. Right? He says you make sure that you wash your face. You, you make sure that you... Um, that you anoint your head. 
that anointing would be with oil, right? That's, that's normally how people would clean themselves up. He says, don't do anything, don't do anything that's out of the ordinary when you fast. Because what the Pharisees would do, not to pick on them, but this is who Jesus is picking on, so what they would do is, you know, the Pharisees would always dress really nice and, and they, would, they would take care of themselves so that they looked good. But whenever they would fast, they would put on their old robes and their old cloaks and they wouldn't wash their hair and they, they'd look um, gaunt and sickly. So the people would say, oh, wow, Brother Andy is fasting this week. Look at how spiritually impressive he is. So instead of feasting on the Lord and his word, the Pharisees would fast and feast on the how amazingly spiritual comments. And Jesus says, don't do that. Because if that's why you give and that's why you pray and that's why you fast, then that will be your reward. And can we be honest? Attaboys are a wonderful thing when they're deserved. Right? Like, I try to do a good job for y'all of telling you thank you and, and appropriately uh, recognizing people for the hard work that they do. But attaboys make you feel good for about 30 seconds to a minute, and then life keeps rolling. God wants you to find your rest in Him forever. He wants your joy and satisfaction to be in Him, which will last for eternity rather than, than an attaboy that'll last a few minutes. And so, with this in mind, I want to give you three ways, very quickly, to apply what we've read here today. The first one is this. Individually, fight prideful spirituality with thankful obedience. Fight prideful spirituality with thankful obedience. What I mean by that is, when you obey Jesus, it's, it's going to be for one of two reasons. It's either going to be for your pride or it's going to be out of thanks to him. And so you fight prideful spirituality. You fight the temptation to say, look at how great and spiritual I am by being thankful for the gospel, for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, for the good news that has come to you. And you do that by being thankful and obedient. So fight prideful spirituality with thankful obedience. The second thing, talk about the why of giving prayer and fasting in your home. Don't just give, don't just fast, and don't just pray in your home. Talk about why you do it. Talk about the, we give because Christ gave himself for us. We sacrificially give to the poor and to the church and to mission efforts because we want the glory of Jesus to spread around the globe and to spread through the Hatch Valley. We pray because God has given us this access through Jesus that we can go to him without going through any priest or an intermediary. And finally, we fast so that we can feel our physical limitations and know that we need God. So talk about the why of giving prayer and fasting. The final, final idea, when you're living out in the community, live in the Holy Spirit. Be faithful, be humble, and be kind. Live in the Holy Spirit. Be faithful, be humble, and be kind. Friends, I just want to keep reminding you again and again, you cannot follow the Sermon on the Mount apart from the Holy Spirit. If you want to have this thankful obedience instead of prideful spirituality, you must have the Holy Spirit working within you. 
And the only, way, the only way you'll have the Holy Spirit working within you is if you are a believer. And so with the Holy Spirit working in your heart, conforming you to the fruits of the Spirit that Paul mentions in Galatians chapter 5, remember that they are fruits. They are not works. They are fruits. They grow from a healthy tree. And we've said this before, right? If we saw a farmer yelling at his chili field because it wasn't producing good chili, we would call him crazy. Just like if a believer was yelling at himself for not producing the fruits of the Spirit, he'd be crazy. You cannot force the fruits of the Spirit to come out of you. You cannot force yourself to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. That is a fruit from living in the Holy Spirit. That is healthy growth in a healthy Christian. So live in the Holy Spirit. Be faithful. Do what God has called you to do. Do what Jesus has commanded you to do. But do it with humility and with kindness. Do it knowing that it's God working in you. And do it for the good of those around you. It's a lot, right? (laughs) But God is good. And he's faithful. And his grace is real and true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your graciousness. We thank you for your commands. And and we know that those two things don't fight against each other. Father, help us to not create a dichotomy where there's not one. You are a gracious and good God who has saved us by grace, through faith, in Jesus alone. But as the Protestant reformer Martin Luther said, You've saved us by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Father, help us to follow you. Help us to be obedient. (coughs) Help us to give sacrificially, but not do it in a showy way. Help us to have deep and abiding and joyful prayer lives and not just be prayers in public only. Father, show us the the gift and the fruit of, of fasting. Help us to fast together as a community but to do it in a way that doesn't say, look at me, but rather in a way that feasts on you and your word. Father, we love you, and we ask that you would continue the work of of what Jesus is calling to as as we celebrate the Lord's Supper and as we we go about our week. Lord, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, friends, it's it's time to respond, and it's, it's my favorite time of the month. It's, it's the first Sunday, and so we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And so uh, what, what I'm going to ask you to do is, uh, is to listen for just a few more moments. If, if you are a believer, uh, whether you're a member of this church or not, if, if you've turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are welcome to participate in, in, in the the, the taking in of the Lord's Supper with us. If you're not a believer, I want you to listen for just a few, few more minutes, okay? Uh, when Jesus was with his disciples, right before he was about to die, uh, they, they celebrated the Passover feast, and Jesus took the bread, and he broke it, and he told his disciples this. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. When you eat this, eat it in remembrance of me. And so when, when we come up and we tear off a piece of this bread, I didn't tear that second piece very well. Um, When we tear off a piece of this bread, we're reminded that all of our sins, past, present, and future, 
went on Jesus. He became sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He bore our sins and suffered in our place, receiving the wrath of God that we deserve upon himself. And in the end, when he said it is finished, he meant it. Our sins are paid for. God's judgment and wrath are no longer on us if we believe. Jesus then took the wine and he told his disciples, he said, this this cup is the cup of the new covenant. It's my blood which is poured out for you. When you drink this, drink it in remembrance of me. And so as, as we come up and we take a piece of the bread and we dip it into the grape juice, we're reminded that there's nothing we have to do to earn God's love. We don't have to take the Lord's Supper. We don't have to join a church, give money, go on mission trips. We don't have to do any of that. Jesus is what makes us righteous. His death and resurrection are what save us. And so we do these things. We take the Lord's Supper. We join a church. We give money. We go on mission trips. Not to earn God's love, but as an answer and response of thankfulness to God's love. So friend, if if you're not a believer, um, I'd love to talk with you and pray with you as, as we're responding to the Lord through the taking of his Lord's Supper. If you are a believer, we'd ask you to just spend a few minutes maybe confessing sin and, and just dealing with your heart and making sure that you're ready in a way that Paul tells us to be ready in 1 Corinthians to receive the Lord's Supper. But let's, let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this chance to, to respond to you through the, the celebration of your supper. Father, we, we pray that, that, um, that you would just be working on our hearts, bringing us to confession of sin, uh, helping us to find the joy and, and the, the life that is found in, in Jesus' death and resurrection. And God, I, I pray that, that we would um, we just have a sweet moment of, of, of surrender and celebration. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed tree.
be seated. Uh, we're going to watch a quick video, and then we'll have the announcements. 